Okay, week three, here we go. Just uh, Jesus, theologians, the church, individual Christians have always had the tendency to fall into two errors when talking about Jesus. The first error I tried to address uh, last week, people say that Jesus, he was an excellent man, he was a great prophet, he was an exceptional leader, but somehow he was not quite fully God. And the second error people fall into is they say, Jesus, whatever else he was, he was not quite fully human. That whilst he looked like a man and behaved like a man, he was not a full human being. He was somehow able to float through his life on a slightly higher plane than the rest of us. Somehow untouched or less constrained than we are by our own humanity. And there's always a temptation to distort Jesus in one of these two ways, to emphasize his humanity over his divinity, or to emphasize his divinity over his humanity. Um, Blaise Pascal, a few centuries back, the philosopher, he said the church has always struggled with this. The church has had as much difficulty in showing that Jesus Christ was man against those who denied it, as in showing he was God, and the probabilities were equally great. Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, Unitarians, all deny the divinity of Jesus. This can slip inside the church as well. You get liberal theologians questioning the virgin birth and so on. Somehow Jesus was less than a man or a woman like you and me. On the other hand, Docetists and Gnostics of the first century and New Age uh, philosophers of the 21st century go the other way and say, well, Jesus was not really fully man. And this error that Jesus was not fully human has crept also into the church. In fact, every Christmas, we sing here at Burlington a song that suggests Jesus was not fully human. (gasps) Shock, horror, gasp, I hear you say. We've fallen from our great, mighty theological position. The song goes like this. Away in a manger, no crib for a bed. The second verse, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Imagine a baby that didn't cry. How freakish would that be? (laughs) Babies need love, so they cry. Babies need food, so they cry. Babies need changing, so they cry. Babies are too hot, too cold, so they cry. Every baby cries. That's how they learn to communicate, how they begin to express themselves. When Jesus was born, he screamed his little head off. Because that's what babies do. And the idea, you see, ever so subtly creeps in that Jesus wasn't quite like us. He was a baby that did not cry, that sat and stared. (laughs) Somehow he wasn't quite normal. I want to show this morning, to compliment last week, that Jesus was and is fully God, excuse me, fully God, but he became a full human being that these two ideas about Jesus are totally inseparable. And the moment we emphasize one at the expense of the other, we have misunderstood who Jesus is and was. The famous writer G.K. Chesterton was right. People are equally puzzled by his insane magnificence and his insane meekness. They have parted his garments between them, and for his vesture they have cast lots, though the coat was without seam, woven from top throughout. You cannot separate his divinity, his insane magnificence, from his humanity, his insane meekness. They go together 
interlocked. The moment you stray into one above the other, you have misunderstood who Jesus is and was. And it's incredibly important that Jesus was a human being. It's important theologically, if he wasn't a man, he couldn't save us. If Jesus was not a human being, he couldn't die in my place. If Jesus wasn't God, he couldn't help me get back to him. It's really important theologically that Jesus was a human being. But it's important relationally too. You see, if if he was not a full human being, then Jesus doesn't understand me. Jesus has no idea what I face, what I feel, what I fear as a human being. If Jesus is not fully man, there will always be the gulf of humanity between us. Imagine going to the Queen for afternoon tea. La-di-da. High tea, Earl Grey, nonetheless. And scones, or is it scones? And there you are, you and her, in the room. What the flip would you say to her? Anything you'd want to talk about, she'd have no idea what you're on about. Ooh, I've heard about the credit crunch, ma'am. What would she know or care? Do you fear your property being devalued? You ask her whether she's filled in her tax return. Or is it a hassle when the Tesco van arrives with the shopping? You can't moan about the hassle of catching the bus into town. Or queuing for your pension. Or complain about Dell's customer service. What would you talk to her about? You can't moan to her about the length of your hospital stay or the amount of your council tax bill. Whatever you say, she's got no idea. It is totally beyond her experience. Maybe the pain of watching your family split through divorce is one of the few things that she would have in common with many in our country today. Apart from that, I can't think that there is much that we would be able to share to make connection with. Would you run to her for support, for empathy, for connection as you face the storms, the difficulties, the struggles of life in her kingdom? No, because she wouldn't have a clue what you were talking about. She's never been where you are. She's never felt what you feel. She's never faced what you face. How much worse with God who's stuck up in heaven all of the time when we struggle out our days here on earth? Why would I run to him? Why would I connect with him? How could I connect? What would he know? How could he possibly understand? Unless, of course, he's been here. Unless he has faced it. Unless God himself has known it from our end, seen it from our side. Unless, of course, the immortal has become mortal. The creator become the created. Unless, of course, God's become man, like you and like me. I'd like you to open your Bibles if you've closed them back to page 981, where uh, Paul kindly read to us some moments ago. I don't know how you're doing with your Bible readings. A chapter a day gets you through the Gospels and Revelation by the end of this series. If you are, you will know that today our reading in church is the same as our reading at home. How good is that? Okay, here we are, Matthew 14. Here we have a single day in the life of Jesus. On this particular day, before morning becomes evening, Jesus will have wept, run, shouted, cursed, praised, doubted. There will be great highs and greater lows. The clamor of people and the pain of loneliness, all packed in to one single day. 
And as we look at this day together, there is one thing we can know for sure. Jesus knows how you feel. Verse 13, here we go. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat. What had happened? What news? The news was that his cousin John, the person who had led the way for Jesus' mission, the boy he'd played with in childhood, whose birthdays he had known, maybe whose summer holidays they'd spent together, this man counted the cost, paid the price, John is dead. John, in the prime of his life, senselessly murdered, decapitated by a callous, people-pleasing monarch. Does Jesus brush it off? like some superhero, like Dr. Spock, void of emotion, untouched by human reality. No, as it would with you, as it does with me, grief overtakes him. Jesus faces the rude, life-interrupting, soul-piercing, heart-wrenching body blow of the biggest magnitude any of us can know when we hear the news that someone we know and love has died. Intense sorrow. Whatever plans Jesus had that day, nothing mattered anymore. Whatever agenda and goals they could wait, grief was overwhelming, consuming. Jesus, we're told, needs to get away. He must get away. He needs to think. He needs to pray. He needs to weep. He just wants to be alone. When he heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place to look at it, to come to terms with it, to find himself, to feel it, to know it. And it seems also, we don't get it here in Matthew, Luke and Mark also tell different parts of this day in Jesus' life. And so we're kind of bringing different aspects that Matthew doesn't mention to bear on our story to get a full understanding of what was going on that day for Jesus. It seems that when John was killed by Herod, Herod issued a threat... We read about it in Luke chapter 9, a threat towards Jesus. Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. So we might add to Jesus' intense sorrow, immediate threat. It's not been a good morning by anybody's standards. And Jesus is trying to get away. But before he can actually get away, Mark tells us about something else that was going on. You see, Jesus had sent out his disciples on mission. He'd done a bit, and then he'd said to them, now you go and do the kind of things that I've been doing. So they went out and preached. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Imagine how these disciples are feeling, such is the success of their first mission. These disciples are utterly overjoyed. They were just uneducated fishermen, but now the demons are obeying them and sick people are getting healed. They just cannot believe what's happening in their lives and what's happening to them. And they come rushing in to Jesus, who is reeling from this news about John the Baptist, in order to report, Mark tells us, everything that's been going on. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Jesus just wants to get away. And now the twelve are back and they're singing, oh happy day, and shine Jesus shine and stuff. And he's feeling like the pits. You know what that's like. You see them coming back from spring harvest. Uh, I loved what Sean said. It takes great faith to describe a Butlin chalet as a villa, Sean, wherever you are. I thought that was brilliant. So get the pits. So Jesus, suddenly he goes from this intense sorrow 
and this immediate threat to his life, and he wants to share in their immeasurable joy, because Jesus wanted more than anything for these disciples to get it. He knew that everything he had needed to be invested in these twelve, because one day he would be gone, and they would need to carry on. If the twelve didn't get it, it would all fall apart. See, the joys and the... It's not lunchtime yet. The joys and the sorrows immeasurable joy, the ups and the downs of life. So Jesus, he's, he's got this grief to deal with, he's got these excited disciples that can't contain themselves, that keep singing bind us together and stuff. He just wants to be on his own, he needs to mourn what's happened to John, he wants to weep. Maybe he feels bad about John. John was killed because of Jesus. And he can't get away. And the disciples are rushing in with these great stories. Now look what happens. Look what happens. Back in Matthew, there in front of you. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. But we know before he could do that, before he could do that, the disciples had burst in. And he tries to get away. But what happens now? Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed, he saw a large crowd. He wants to be alone, but they follow him. You ever feel like that as a mum? You want to be alone, but these little people, they follow you everywhere. He wants quiet, but he gets noise. He wants to reflect, but now he has to react. He wants to hide away, but he's still on show. Mark tells us that the immense crowds were so pressing in and demanding upon him that there wasn't even chance for them to eat that day. I guess we've all had days like this one. You're weary. It's the end of a long shift. At home or at work, the kids are screaming for your attention, you've got nothing left to give. The day at work has been long, and the phone rings one more time. It's the client from hell. You're at the end of your rope, the end of your line. But still the emails keep coming, the demands keep coming. All you want is to be alone, left alone for a while. So they get in the boat trying to get away, and then they're faced with this crowd. And out of this crowd, not just immense crowds, they face insensitive interruptions. I don't know what you're like when you're interrupted. Most people who are interrupted get cross, frustrated, annoyed, even angry. And Jesus has gone away for something quiet. He needs to grieve and to weep. The people he has decided can wait. They can wait till tomorrow. He knows they'll still be there tomorrow. But his tomorrow is there today. And when they land, there's more people than they could possibly have imagined. Are they there to bless Jesus? To comfort him in his sorrow? To support him in his time of solace? No, not at all. They're there for themselves. They've not come to give, but to take. The people, they want to be touched, to be healed, to be loved. By now, most of us might have been ready to burst. Trying to get away, full of our grief. But get this, the sheer depth, the brilliance, the genius of this man, Jesus. When he landed and saw the crowd, he blew his top and told everyone to clear off. He shouted his disciples for not finding a quieter place. He sat in the boat and had a pity party. He became all introspective and felt sorry for himself. No, when Jesus landed and saw the crowd, he had compassion. He had compassion on them and healed their sick. There was one emotion that for Jesus was always to rise above the grief and the stress and the frustration and the irritation, the exhaustion, and that was his compassion. And this word compassion is no shallow kind of, I'm watching TV and I feel sorry for starving children kind of. This was a deep, literally, he felt it deep within his bowels. 
He felt the limp of the crippled. He he felt the hurt of the diseased. He felt the loneliness of the leper. He felt the embarrassment of the sinful. And so one by one, he reached them, he touched them, he loved them, he healed them, because that's the kind of God he is. Brilliant, isn't it? How do you respond when you're interrupted? What about me? He's gone to find this place of refuge. He wants to find a place where he himself can receive. But all he can find is an opportunity to give. With nothing left to give, he gives anyway. He's the one needing to be touched and loved and understood. But instead he touches and loves and understands others still. Eventually, maybe the disciples remember something about John and the grief that Jesus must be facing, and they plan to send the crowds away. It says, verse 15, as evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already late. Send the crowds away so they can go and buy some food. But Jesus says, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. They're still depending on him. They're still demanding from him. You give them something to eat. So we might add Jesus faces at the end of this day some inept assistance from his disciples. They've been on mission. They've seen God release people from demons and heal the sick. And now in the presence of the bread of life, they say they have no bread. What does Jesus do? Does he get angry or cross, frustrated? Does he shout at them and scream? No, tired and weary, seized with grief. He says, bring the bread to me. And the crowds get fed. A day in the life of Jesus. It's been a hell of a day. One of those days that feels like it's gone on forever. A day with no let up, no give up, no peace. He still needs to be alone. Notice verse 22, how determined Jesus is. He knows that he needs the space to allow him to face what's happened to him. Many of us store up trouble for ourselves because we never fight for the space we need to deal with what's happened in our lives. Immediately determined, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. Alone to think, alone to weep, alone to pray, alone to be with himself, to be with his God. No demanding crowds, no frustrating disciples. It's been one of those days. You've had them, I've had them. When your head hits the pillow and you turn out the lights and you're relieved to have made it, you're simply glad to have survived. Jesus knows what days like that feel. And so commentating on his life, the writer in the book of Hebrews puts it like this. He says, we can be really confident. We can hold firmly to the faith that we profess. Since we have a great high priest who's gone through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Even in days like that, our faith can be solid and secure. When circumstances would rob us and situations would steal our faith from us. We can hold firmly to our faith. Why? He goes on, because we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. 
We can hold firmly to faith, even when the day goes completely belly up and seems like it will never end, because we have a God who knows, who understands, and who will pull us through. He can empathize and he can empower. We have a God we can run to, relate to, connect with, because he's been there, right there, right where we are. Whatever it is, he's faced it, done it, and gone through it without stain or without blemish. And if he got through it, he can get us through it too. He can empathize, knows how we feel. He can empower. He's been through it. He can take us through with him. Excuse me. (coughs) I like the way Eugene Peterson expresses it. He's been there, right where we are. J.B. Phillips puts it another way. He was the Eugene Peterson of a couple of decades ago. For we have no superhuman high priest to whom our weaknesses are unintelligible. He himself has shared fully in all our experience of temptation, except that he never sinned. (coughs) 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 Oh, it's embarrassing when you've got something in your throat in front of all these people. To all appearances, Kent Clark was a normal human being. He, walked, he worked in a normal office. He wore ordinary glasses. He'd been to Specsavers. <laughs> but then something happens. Lois, the girl of his dreams, is about to get knocked down by a truck and suddenly his chest bursts open to reveal a big S. He's not Ken Clark after all. He's a faker. He's really Superman. da 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 Unlike Kent Clark, Jesus was not pretending. He had no S-O-G, Son of God, on his vest under his clothes. He didn't switch from being human in times of crisis. He was human. From the tiny cells that formed in Mother Mary to the blood and sweat that flowed on the cross, human, like you, like me. He had a human body. So he got tired, like at Jacob's well. He got hungry, like after his time of fasting. It took nine months for him to grow in his mother's womb before he was born. He bled and died like human beings. He had human emotions. He got angry, like when he went into the temple. He got sad, like when he saw the rich man who loved his money more than anything else. He had love towards Mary and Martha when Lazarus died. He had human experiences, like temptation. He was tempted. Mark chapter 1 tells us very clearly, in fact, all the Gospels tell us very clearly, that Jesus experienced temptation. I want to press pause here just for a moment. Because of many of the attributes of being human, this is the one where often as Christians we kind of gloss over and act as if Jesus wasn't quite fully human in this way. We imagine that Jesus was so holy and pure, and he was, that he wasn't really tempted because he just wasn't interested in sin, so it didn't tempt him. The Bible is very clear, Jesus was tempted. Now you can only be tempted by something if you are attracted to it. 
If as I go out of church this morning, someone offers me a packet of cigarettes and says, this will do you good, it will calm your nerves, I am not tempted. I'm not tempted because uh, when it comes to smoking, I have absolutely no interest in smoking whatsoever. It's it's a non-deal. It doesn't engage me. It doesn't draw me. It doesn't attract me. But imagine if I was giving up smoking, if I'd been without a cigarette for four weeks and my body is at the height of nicotine withdrawal. The same offer suddenly becomes very tempting because it's attractive to me. I would be tempted and it would take all my willpower to resist or not. Jesus was tempted, which means in his humanity he was attracted by the lure of sin like you and like me. Now I want to push this a little further. And what I'm about to say feels offensive. It feels wrong because we are so unused to talking about Jesus like this. But if Jesus was really human, if he really experienced life as we do, then he was tempted like we are, lured by sin in the same way as us. So if we take the biggest single issue for men, sexual temptation, thoughts, fantasies, lusts, always been the same, every generation. It is consistent with what the Bible portrays that Jesus, a young, red-blooded male with testosterone pumping around his veins, was not similarly tested. When women flocked to him, draped themselves over him in their provocative clothing, remember what most of them did for a living, when they washed his feet and used their hair to dry it. He was tempted. What bloke wouldn't be? The Bible tells us he was tempted in every way. But he never sinned. No impure thoughts. No unholy fantasy. He said no. He kept his mind under control. He kept his body under control. He kept his eyes under control. And men should admire him for that. And women should love him for it. Men, when it's late at night and you're at the computer and you're tempted by what is just one click away, Jesus knows how you feel. When you're away from home and the TV offers you more than it should, Jesus knows how you feel. But more, but more, much more, he also knows how to live free, because he never sinned. So he can empathize with us in our struggles. He's been with us, tempted in every way as we are. And he can empower us to freedom because he's able to resist. Jesus, our glorious champion. Isn't that remarkable? He's been right where you are, but without sin. Hallelujah. So he knows what it's like to be right where you are. And he can get you out of right where you are because he got himself out of right where he was. Again and again and again. And that's true whatever temptation. But we kind of dumb it all down like he wasn't really tempted. It wasn't really an issue. Tempted in every way. Just like you and just like me. And it's difficult to talk about Jesus and these sordid things in the same sentence. But if Jesus somehow floated through his life without really being tempted, like some superman, then what use is he to me when I'm tempted? What does he know and what does he understand? But if he's been there, and if he won there, then when I'm there, I can win too. He can empathise and he can empower. That his freedom might become my freedom. 
His victory, my victory. Let's press play again. He had loads of human experiences. He was tempted. He had to learn as he grew up. He spent time with people who knew more than he did as he was growing up. He had to work. He, he was a manual laborer. He was a carpenter. He had calluses on his hands because he would have worked with his hands. He didn't use a trixo or oil of ule. His hands would have been rough like a manual laborer. He, he had to be obedient, the Bible tells us, as he was growing up. He faced life with a rather unremarkable body. He had no beauty. I don't know what you think about Jesus, but you might think that uh, uh, he would have been just stunningly beautiful with a, a shiny super glow. He had special non-aging skin. His biceps you could die for. His looks would kill. But the Bible says he wasn't like that. In fact, the Bible says there was nothing, nothing in his appearance that we should be drawn to him. That's quite a harsh thing to say, isn't it? That's almost worse than what my girls say when I get dressed to go out in the morning. Nothing. And you're going, oh, I wish I didn't have this body. I wish it didn't look like this. I wish, 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 wish. And Jesus goes through the whole of his life. And God's verdict on him was, well, he didn't look like much. Cheers. No beauty, no majesty that we should be attracted or drawn to him. And so much more. See, if you want all these verses, you know, shout and I'll send them to you. We haven't got time, really. He was stressed, astonished, happy. He told jokes. He had friends. He loved children. He enjoyed parties. He celebrated holidays. So we could go on. He had money troubles. Do you know there was a time when the bill came, the tax bill came, and Jesus didn't have enough money to pay. If you've had a bill that you couldn't afford, Jesus knows what that feels like. He was sometimes homeless. People stole from him. Even his friends stole from him on occasions. People told unjust, cruel, unkind things about about him. His disciples let him down. They even betrayed him. His family thought he was mad. If you uh, have a family that think you're mad, some of us here this morning, we have families that think we're mad. Jesus knows what it's like to have your family think that you're insane. Not all his prayers were answered like in the Garden of Gethsemane. You're crying out to God and he's not saying yes like you want him to say yes. Jesus knows how you feel. He even knows what it's like to be left to die bleeding and alone. You see, he knows how you feel. He's been right there. He knows how you feel. And if all he was was a God up in heaven, untouched, unmoved, unexperienced by the broken, the fallenness, the vulnerability, the pain, the brutality of being human, it would be difficult to run to him, to turn to him. But he does know, and we can run to find both empathy and empowerment. Jesus said, I've told you these things. Because in this world you will have trouble. (laughs) How true. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Hey, we're coming into land, but I want to go back to that chapter. Matthew chapter 14. I want to show you how it ends with great encouragement. We're into the night of the day, the the night after the day uh, before. After he dismissed them, We read that he went up uh, onto the mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone at last. But notice what's happened to the disciples. The disciples had gone on ahead in the boat. The boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Mark tells us that they were straining with the oars. It was a wild night. Storms on this lake were real, ferocious, and unpredictable. Friends, colleagues of theirs had died on that lake. And there they are, all alone in the darkness. They knew what it meant. 
And maybe that describes how you feel right now this morning. Suddenly, unexpectedly, as that storm, a storm of another kind has changed your life. The news of a death, a bad health report, a failure, a disappointment, a job loss, whatever it might be. And do you, like those disciples, are plunged into the eye of a storm, you feel all alone, and you wonder, will I ever get out of this storm? And you're saying like them, where is Jesus? Where is Jesus right now? Where is he when I need him the most? And what does he know about my life anyway? How can he understand and what does he care? This passage answers that question. Where is Jesus in the heart of your storm? See what happens. Jesus went to them, walking on the water. Where is Jesus? Jesus is coming to you right in the middle of your particular storm. And this Jesus who comes walking towards you knows how you feel. This Jesus can empathize because he's been there, he's felt it, he's faced it too. And not only can he empathize, he can empower because he did it all perfectly. And he himself has got to the other side and he'll make sure you get there too. And maybe we need to hear what those disciples needed to hear and what Jesus said. In the midst of the storm, he said, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. He's there in the storm. I tell you, some of the storms that Kerry and I have faced have been the times we've known God's presence in a much deeper and more profound way than at any other time in our lives. He always comes in storms. And he always comes because he knows what it's like to be in a storm. He knows how you feel. And if you haven't seen him yet in your storm, I'm going to invite you this morning, the close of this message, to look up. To take your eyes off the wind and the waves. To take your eyes off your arms straining to hold the oars. To look up and see that our Jesus still comes in the storms. And he still says, take courage, it's I. Because he knows how you feel. And he knows what we need. And know there's great hope. Look how it ends. When they crossed over. They, hey, they got to the other side. You see, with Jesus, you will get to the other side. Whew, it's good, isn't it? You will get to the other side. A boy went into a pet shop looking for a puppy. The shop owner showed him a box full of little cute puppies. The, boys looked at, the boy looked at the puppies. He picked each one up in turn, examined it, and carefully placed it back in the box. After a while, he went to the shop owner and said that he'd chosen his puppy, and he asked how much it would cost. The man gave him the price, and the boy promised to be back in a few days. Don't be too long, the owner cautioned. Puppies like these sell really quickly. The boy turned with a knowing smile. I'm not worried, he said. Mine will still be there. The boy went to work weeding, washing windows, cleaning shoes. He worked hard and saved all his money. And when he had enough for the puppy, he went back to the store. And he went up to the counter and he opened both pockets onto the counter. It was just enough. And the owner told him he could go and choose his puppy. The boy's puppy was still there. Reaching to the back of the box, the boy pulled out a skinny dog with a limp leg. The owner stopped him. No, no, please, please don't choose that one. He's crippled. He can't play. He can't fetch. He'll never run. No, thank you, sir, the boy replied, politely and firmly. This is exactly the kind of dog I have been looking for. And then the owner noticed for the first time, extending from the bottom of the boy's trousers was a brace, a brace for his crippled leg. 
The boy wanted that dog because he knew how that dog felt. In heaven today, there is a man who bears the scars of death in his hands, his feet, and his side. And he chooses you because he knows how it feels. He knows what you're like. And you're special to him. Let's pray. Let's pray.